If you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2 today. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So if you've got a Bible, if someone near you has a Bible, um, I don't know if you can be six feet away from them, but uh, consider sharing. But uh, yeah, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Let me read us for us. Let me read it for us. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump right in. So again, 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they, may, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Father, as I was in your word this morning, I was very struck by how King David prayed. Even in moments of strength, he prayed these words, and so we pray it now. I pray that you would lead us to the rock that is greater than I. Father, we are weak, we are passing, we are fleeting, we are but a vapor, but you are Lord, you are God, you reign forever and ever and ever. Father, we dearly look forward to the day where there will be no more sicknesses, that there will be no more injustice, that there will be no more arguing or fighting. There will be peace unending through the grace of Jesus Christ. And as we look forward to that day, let us labor and work well this day. I pray that this word would be faithful to what you intend to tell your people. I pray for open ears and open hearts. I pray that this sermon would not be about what I think, but what God says. And anything that I got wrong, I pray that you would help these people to forget it. Lord, be with us. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Real quick, I'm going to move this up forward. It feels back, weird to be back this far. And now I'm surrounded by plants. This is normal. Anyway, um, I would call myself a practical person. Um, I would say practicality is really important to me. And uh, that's true for a lot of different things in my life, but maybe one of the areas that it causes the most conversation at home is when it comes to socks. Um, and what I mean by that is that I'm very happy to wear socks that have holes in them. I don't see a problem with it. And um, my wife would say maybe there's a problem with that. And in her defense, <clears throat> excuse me, I would say that she might add an adjective to before the word hole. She might use the word gaping to describe the holes in some of my socks. Uh, but I continue to wear them. But in my opinion, I'm going to get theological about socks for a second. Um, 
If a sock continues to perform its sock-like duties, then it's still a perfectly fine sock. Do we, do we agree, disagree? I don't, I don't care. Um, right? So like a, a sock with a hole is still a sock as long as it still does sock-like things, right? Is it pretty? No. Does it work? And is it practical? Absolutely. These socks, as long as they keep doing sock-like things, even with a hole, still does the duty of a sock, which therefore still makes it a sock. At the point at which a sock loses its elasticity, it is no longer a sock, it is then a sack, and then it is no longer good to become a sock anymore. I'd say like a sock with a hole in it is a lot better than a, a, than a sack with no hole, right? That just doesn't make any sense. So that's how I think, and that's some of the conversations that we have at home, and that's what it looks like to be a stitcher. so you're welcome for not being related to me. Um, anyways, as someone who really appreciates practicality for like stuff like that, I really, as you can tell, I really appreciate very clearly defined... <clears throat> Uh, just really clear definitions, right? So I like to clearly define my socks before I, I treat them as such and wear them on my feet. Um, you know, whether it's that or if it's, it's a job, I, like, I don't think I'll ever be a good manager uh, because I don't, I'm not good at telling people what to do, but I'm, I'm really good at being told what to do. Like if someone says, I need this thing done in this way, I'm like, cool, see you in eight hours. And, like, and that's really helpful for me. And um, because of practicality and because of how much I value it, I've come to really value this passage of Scripture over the last few weeks as I've studied it. Um, this particular passage, I've noticed, gives Christians directives on how to behave and how to serve Jesus as we follow him through our lives. So that's what we're going to be looking at. These are directives on how to um, behave and serve Jesus with our lives as Christians. If you Think back to last week, Pastor Travis introduced the book of 2 Timothy to us. Um, it's a letter from the Apostle Paul written to Timothy, uh, his protege, his disciple. Um, it's the second letter that we know of written while Timothy was ministering. He was serving as a pastor at uh, the church in Ephesus. And Paul, during this writing, is imprisoned for his preaching of the gospel. And he's beginning to understand that his devotion to Jesus is going to cost him his life. Chapter 1 was focused primarily on good teaching, making sure Paul had communicated all the truths that he needed to communicate to Timothy before his um, eventual execution, so just passing on that good thing, as well as a sense of encouragement. So in chapter 2, he kind of moves on to answer the question, what do I do now? And that's kind of where we find ourselves. Uh, now, he's not giving him like a work schedule, which is something I really appreciate. He's not being like, okay, at 8.15, you have to pray, 8.30, read your Bible, and like giving him a set of um, instructions for the whole day, which would be great. And those are awesome and good things. Uh, but what he does do, Paul, is he lays out for Timothy the attributes that should define the Christian who seeks to minister to a broken world, sharing and spreading the good news of Jesus Christ and his power to save. We know that it's not by doing anything that we are saved, right? That is, that is a clear message in the Bible. We are not saved by our doing. We will confess gladly that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through his perfect birth and life, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. There is no sermon that can teach you the right things to do to get on God's good side, because there are no things to do to get on God's good side. God's good side, God's right side, is God's right hand, which is where Jesus Christ sits enthroned as king. And the only way to be saved is to believe in Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Doing what we talk about in this sermon today will not save you. If you do not have your faith fully placed in Jesus Christ to save you, trying to do what Paul talks about in this passage will not save you. It will kill you. So if you do not believe in Jesus, step one, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Step two, 
Let's read the passage together. So as we look at this passage, we will find that for those whose faith is in Jesus Christ, for those who call him Lord, Paul gives us five practices that must define us as we follow Jesus Christ. Five practices to follow and that must we uh, sorry, five practices that must define us as we follow Jesus Christ. Practice number 1 is multiply. Practice number one, multiply. Paul begins his exhortations in the section by saying, you then, my child, in verse one. He, when he says then, this is kind of a linguistic indicator as you study the Bible. If you say then, it's kind of this turn, okay? So we've talked about A, A, then B, right? Because of this, this is now what's going to be true. Because this happened, now we're gonna do this. So then, now we, we've been informed, now we're gonna go do. That's what this then is gonna kind of be serving as for us. And then he calls Timothy my child. And we know that we've talked about Timothy's not his actual child. He is a disciple of Paul's, one whom Paul clearly has great affections for. And we see in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he calls Timothy his child in the faith. And in chapter 2, or 2 Timothy verse one, chapter 1, wow, I'm getting these numbers really confused. I'm sorry. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 2, he again calls Timothy his beloved child. There's a degree of intimacy between these two men that doubtlessly shared hours, meals, laughs, tears, life together. And that kind of unique bond is only found by people who share Jesus Christ. Like we can have really good friends. I have good friends. I have parents. I have family members that I love dearly. I've known them my whole life and I will never be as close to them as I am to my brothers and sisters in Jesus because when we have Jesus in common, that is what truly binds us and brings us together. And that's what Paul and Timothy are sharing, this bond in Jesus Christ. So it's in this framework that Paul says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Both before this phrase and after, Paul is specifically speaking to Timothy's ability to do gospel ministry in Ephesus to promote the glory of God by sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word strengthen here is actually the Greek word endiamu, and if you're a Greek scholar, I'm sorry for butchering that probably, but uh, the Greek word is endiamu. Uh, it actually appears a handful of times throughout the New Testament, and I think it's really interesting, his use here, uh, because this word, um, the idea of be strengthened, is actually the idea of being strengthened by an outside force. It's not like, you know, pick up this weight and lift it a bunch of times and be strong. It's be strengthened, receive strength, right? It's the same word that Paul uses in the book of Philippians chapter four, verse 13, when he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So when he says be strengthened, it's not like be strong, it's get strength from God. Get strength from, the, get strength from God in Christ Jesus. Paul knows the very simple truth that he passes on to Pastor Timothy which remains a word for all believers today, the ability to do the will of God and to minister his gospel comes from God's strength through grace and not of our own ability. The ability to do the will of God and minister his gospel comes from God's strength through grace, not of our own ability. Our ministry, whether it's preaching, evangelizing, teaching in a classroom, coding, building, plumbing, creating, or parenting, is impossible to do according to God's will unless God is the one to provide the strength. God's goal is to multiply his strength through his people so that others might know his 
grace. That is the will for Timothy 2,000 years ago. It's God's will for us today to depend on the strength found through the grace of God. One thing that I have learned about myself over the past few months of being home a lot uh, is that I am not good at playing with Barbie dolls. Um, And I don't want you to hear me wrong because I love to have fun with my children. Uh, They are amazing, and it's kind of crazy to me that these beautiful little ladies want anything to do with me at any time. Um, And I love them with all my heart, but the games that we play with Barbie dolls are very different from the games I played with army men, Batman, and robot aliens when I was a kid. Um, So, like, no knocks on Barbies. Barbies can do some great stuff, but she cannot save Gotham City with the United States Army when alien robots are shooting missiles out of their claws. Sorry, it's just different. So, at 7 a.m., when my child stumps out of her room over to mine, I'm already kind of half awake because they walk loudly, um, and she sweetly leans over right next to my ear, and she says in her sweetest little voice, Daddy, can you come play with me and make me breakfast? There is a strength that Eric just doesn't have in that moment but the Lord has been gracious enough to provide it, right? But that's ministry. Like, that's what ministry is. And I'm not just talking about, like, church workers. This is, like, ministry. This is loving people like Jesus loved people. That's God. And through the a complete inability on my own to be any kind of a functional human being at 7 o'clock in the morning gives me the strength to get up, stumble over to our play area, pick up a Barbie doll before coffee or breakfast, and play Let's be friends and pregnant and babies and stuff. Um, like, it's just, it's crazy because, God, I don't have that in me, guys. I just, like, I just don't. And it's, like, I know it sounds kind of funny, but, like, there is not a part of Eric that's really stoked in the morning to get up and play Barbie dolls. But that is how God chooses to use me to minister his strength to my children. The strength for ministry is not our own. We don't make ourselves strong. We are made strong by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And Paul moves on then to show what that strength will do. So in verse 2, he says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Many of us have heard the phrase before, this idea, this saying, but our goal as followers of Jesus is to make disciples who then go and make disciples. Like we're not just trying to add people to TCC. We're trying to grow God's kingdom. One of my favorite Disney movies is Hercules. And uh, there's a part in the movie where he fights the Hydra. And if you're not familiar with the Hydra, that's fine. But if you're you're not familiar with the Hydra or the criminal organization in the Marvel Universe, uh, the idea is that it's like this big dragonish creature with three heads. And every time you cut off a head, three more take its place. So you come out, three heads, you cut off one, now there's five instead of three. And that's a big problem, right? It's not just one in and one out. It's growth. It's, it's, It's exponential growth over time, and that's what God longs to see in his people, right? It's not just like, I'm going to grow up, make a disciple to fill my place, I'm going to die, and then someone else is going to fill that. Like, my goal is to just keep making disciples. All of our goals is to continue to make disciples so that God's kingdom doesn't just stagnate, it grows. We want to see God's kingdom grow and multiply. And that's what Paul is longing to see God do through Timothy 
in the Ephesian church. Paul's hope is that as a pastor, Timothy will be able to train others in this same gospel, equip them, and allow them to go forward in the name of Jesus to preach the gospel and make disciples who will in turn continue to teach other people to preach the gospel and make disciples who those people will then go and preach the gospel and make disciples. Our faith in the entirety of our relationship with Jesus Christ is designed to be given away. It's not for us. It's for others, too. It's not for us to hold on to, to ingest, but to come, but to spread out and give away. Author Warren Wearsby puts it like this. He says, the ministry is not something we get for ourselves and keep to ourselves. We are stewards of the spiritual treasure God has given us. It is our responsibility to guard the deposit and then invest it in the lives of others. They, in turn, are to share the word with the next generation of believers. Our life force, what Jesus calls his food in John chapter 4, is to do the will of God. And that is to multiply. That is to make disciples who make disciples who then go and make disciples. Christians, our practice must be multiplication. Practice number two, suffer going to be a fun one, right? Practice number two is suffer. The other night I was getting my kids ready for bed and we were just talking about idea, the idea of suffering and I was talking about it a little bit <clears throat> and one of them just asked, what is suffering? It's a fun question for a three-year-old, isn't it? What is suffering? And it kind of made me glad in the sense that like my kids aren't like, oh yeah, remember that time we suffered really badly? Yeah, that's what that is. Like, sweet, I'm glad that hasn't happened. But here's what I did. I looked up a definition of the word suffering. I'm going to share it with you guys and I want you to tell me if you think this is an accurate definition. Are you ready? This is actually, I actually have to pay attention now. All right. Definition of suffering. To experience or be subjected to something unpleasant or bad. Right? It, like, it doesn't line up. Like, I, um, you know, I, I haven't experienced suffering in a way that a lot of people in our church have. Um, my, I'd say that my suffering probably is pretty minimal compared to what a lot of my brothers and sisters have gone through. Um, but my first reaction is this doesn't even come close to what suffering actually is. The reason I ask you to listen to it is because I think suffering is better understood through experience than definition. And I think Paul thinks that too. Because in verse 3 he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul does speak in a militaristic way, and I'll get into that in just a bit, but I think we can kind of universally accept that soldiers make a really big sacrifice. There's no doubt that the inhabitant of any nation is indebted to those who sacrifice and fight to keep us safe, and those sacrifices come at great personal cost, and the result of, cost is, or the result of sacrifice is often suffering. Soldiers suffer, or sacrifice their dreams, their futures, plans, education, family, stability, mental and physical health, and sometimes even their lives. That's not even mentioning the sacrifices of the family of those who serve. Sacrifice inherently means some degree of suffering. And that despite the pain that comes with sacrificing for suffering, Paul calls Timothy to do it. The Greek word here is actually um, a word for share in sufferings. I'm not going to try to pronounce it because it's really long and difficult. But the word could also be translated as suffer hardship together. And this is the one I really liked. It could also be translated as be a partaker of afflictions. 
The word is an imperative, as in you must do this thing. It is a command. Paul is entreating Timothy here to share in the sufferings of Christ. And as John Calvin points out, the best way to share in the sufferings of Christ is to endure evil patiently. Not angrily, patiently. Warren Wearsby also adds that the work that where we will encounter such suffering is through the ministry of of God's word, meaning the preaching and the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the primary way to follow this command that we see in verse 3 is to do gospel ministry, and as trials and pain comes, we endure it patiently and acknowledge that this suffering is a gift from God. Later on in the passage, Paul uses his own life as an example of how, of how we are to suffer for the glory of God. So look down a little bit with me at verses 8 and 9. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Paul points out that suffering comes from doing the work to serve the true and living God, faithfully obeying the word of God. Pardon me. He also takes a a quick opportunity to inject some good theology that the gospel that we preach must include the resurrected Christ who is related to King David as both the prophetically promised king, God, and man. Paul points specifically that his preaching landed him where he is today in prison as if to say, look, Timothy, these are not empty words. Like I'm doing, I did what I'm telling you to do and this is where it is. Like, and this... This is not in the sermon, but this is just something I want to share. Um, this, uh, something like this, to me, is a great encouragement that the Christian faith is what it claims to be. That God is who he claims to be. Because we don't recruit people to a really good ending. Like, I mean, yes, a really, really good ending. But, like, we, like it's, it's probably a really bad tagline for Christianity to be like, come follow Jesus, it might end poorly. Right? That's just, like... If it's not supernatural, it wouldn't work. If it's not from God, it wouldn't make sense. That is not the wisdom of the world we live in, and yet it works, and it is true. And this is why we follow God. One of my least favorite things my dad used to say to me when I was hurt, and I'd be concerned about it, I'd go up to him and I'd be like, Dad, it hurts when I do this. And uh, if you are a dad or are married to a dad or know a dad, you know the answer to that question, right? If it hurts when I do this, what's the right answer? Don't do that, right? And darn if I don't say the same thing to my kids. (laughs) But the lesson is clear, right? Like if something is causing you to suffer, do as much as it's in your power, just don't do that thing, right? It's a really easy way to avoid suffering. If if, if this hurts, if you don't do this, then, then you won't hurt anymore. But that's not what Paul says. Paul rejects that wisdom. He not only says to share in sufferings, but look, I'm already suffering. Paul's suffering led to his imprisonment. We know it ultimately leads to his execution. Paul is not concerned for his own flesh. He is concerned for the advance of the gospel. The second half of verse 9, he says, the word of God is not bound. Verse 10, he continues. He goes, he says, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul's joy is in suffering is rooted in the unstoppable work of the spread of the gospel, which he trusts the promises of Jesus that even the gates of hell will not prevail against the word of God. And so he patiently endures suffering in order that the people who God has chosen, the elect, the people that God will save, will have the opportunity to hear the gospel. 
to repent and to believe in Jesus. Suffering then is not our destination, but a tool that God uses to grow his people and his kingdom. Suffering is not our destination. It's a tool God uses to grow his people and his kingdom. Our suffering conforms us to be like Christ and our suffering points others to Christ. Our suffering then is for our good and for God's glory. We suffer not for the sake of suffering, but because we suffer, by suffering, we preach the gospel with our lives and our words. We suffer gladly, not because we enjoy the suffering, but because God has counted us worthy to partake in the sufferings like his son did. And it pleased him to allow us to become more like Jesus. We suffer not as unbelievers do. We do not suffer in vain, but we suffer as sufferers with hope, knowing that this momentary affliction is producing within us an eternal weight of glory. We suffer not for our own gain, but because we participate in the ministry of the preaching of the gospel of Christ. And when we receive the suffering that God has promised us would come to those who obey him, we recognize that prophecy has been fulfilled by God who keeps his word and delights in his children to make them beautiful and like their savior. Our marching order as Christians is to share in the sufferings of Christ. Practice number three is fight. I have never been much of a fighter. I know you're all very surprised. It is not my personality. Once, I will admit, I did kick my brother in the face. But in my defense, I was 11. He was being mean. Um, so if you've been there, you've been on my side. But generally, I'm a pretty peaceful person. Uh, I prefer to mediate conflict uh, whenever possible. I don't like confrontation all that much. I'm a nine on the Enneagram, which is a peacemaker personality type. Uh, even when I was a kid, I didn't like violence. We had this uh, unit in English class, class in seventh grade, and it was the mystery. We were like studying the mystery genre. We had to like write our own mysteries and stuff like that. And I felt so guilty about killing a fictional person that all of my stories were about bank robberies. That is not an exaggeration. <laughs> um, I didn't do well. Anyways, the Bible is full of examples of violence, though. Like we, we just can't run away from that. Even peaceful people like me cannot run away from examples of violence in the Bible. And Paul here is using a metaphor to paint the picture of being ready to fight. So look with me again at the, at the um, text, verses 3 and 4. It says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. In going for this military metaphor, Paul is calling for Timothy as the pastor to intentionally share in the sufferings of Jesus as a soldier where Jesus is the leader of our army. And it's definitely not the only time in the New Testament where we see military metaphors. Uh, Philippians 2.25, Paul refers to his brother as Christ as a fellow his brother in Christ as a fellow soldier. Uh, Ephesians 6 has the famous passage alluding to the armor of God as a metaphor for faith. In 1 Corinthians 9, we talk about how um, ministers ought to receive payment, and he likens it to how soldiers receive rations as a member of the military. The conclusion of this type of of the language is straightforward. Christians are warriors. We're in a fight. There's a constant war for this world being fought, and as people called out by God who know the truth of the gospel... We're on the front lines. It is our job 
to fight back darkness, to be a light, to be a voice for the voiceless, a, a fighter for the justice and for the for justice for the oppressed, to be salt, to be, and to offer hope to a world that, without the grace of God, they're in the middle of a losing battle. Paul continues to carry this metaphor out in verse four. He says, "No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one." who enlisted him. So uh, this letter was written by Paul sometime in the mid-60s AD. And so the most common uh, soldier in that type, um, uh, uh, most common soldier during that time was a branch of the Imperial Roman army called the Auxilia. And I think I have like this picture. Uh, There they are. Um, So this is like just a carving of um, a representation of the Auxilia. The Auxilia was comprised of non-Roman citizens of the Roman Empire. And there are actually some people from outside the control of the Roman Empire who were invited to take place in it too. Uh, They were actually paid pretty decently. They were guaranteed uh, 25 years um, in their career. So when you think about that today, if someone said, I can guarantee you'll have a job for the next 25 years, uh, that's pretty uh, interesting. Uh, But they were also further um, promised really uh, kind of a nice retirement package that included at the end of their service, they were awarded full Roman citizenship, which was a really big deal. Um, now, it's not certain that the auxilia is who Paul had in mind here, but um, based on what I've read, I, I think it is, and I think the parallels make sense, right? So listen, the auxilia was willing to recruit anyone. Jesus Christ welcomes all who receive him as Lord. The auxilia is listed by the Roman government to serve the empire. We as Christians um, are saved by God to serve in and promote his kingdom, The auxilia promised a rewarding career. We believers are promised a life filled with true meaning. The auxilia offer the reward of Roman citizenship and a valuable bonus upon retirement from service. The followers of Jesus are welcomed into the presence of God as his people for eternity, receivers of a more glorious inheritance. The soldier has a singular primary job, to fight for whoever they are enlisted to. If you are a soldier who serves two different militaries or if you allow yourself to kind of get engaged in like the day-to-day affairs of like the everyday people, um, it just doesn't fulfill the promises for which you were signed into. And that's what Paul's getting at here. He says um, that we are not to be involved in the fleeting things of this world and that there, well, there are plenty of them. And um, I want to be careful here. We're not... Gnostics, right? We're not saying completely disengage from the world. There are good, right, wonderful things that um, Christians ought to get involved in and be a part of and serve and make a difference and impact in the name of Jesus. But in addition to that, there are so many things in this world that are yelling for our attention that distract us from what God has us in the world to do. His will, which is to proclaim Christ and love others. The author Donald Guthrie puts it like this. The main point is therefore the renunciation of everything which hinders the real purpose of the soldier of Christ. There is nothing wrong, there's nothing intrinsically wrong, in other words, about civilian affairs until they entangle. Then they must be resolutely cast aside. So I want to challenge you. What is entangling you? What is going on in your life that distracts you from proclaiming Christ and loving others? Is it selfishness? Is it your career? Is it a relationship? Hobby? Is it politics? Is it Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat? 
I want to ask you all to pray this week that God would reveal what is in your life that is distracting you from fighting the fight of faith. Because we are called soldiers. We are enlisted by God Almighty to fight the fight of faith for the glory of God and for his kingdom. We fight against sin, says Hebrews 12.4. We fight against the flesh, says Ephesians 6.12. We fight against demons and blasphemies, says 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. God's word is our sword, says Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. We are in a battle every single day. We are soldiers. And Christians, listen, we report to only one commander-in-chief, the Holy of Holies, the Ancient of Days, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. There is no greater loyalty a Christian can possibly have than to our Lord, and anything that diverts attention from him must be put to death. Fight against that which tempts you to cast your, the eyes of your hearts anywhere else but on Jesus Christ. Practice number four is work. And I will admit this is the hardest one for me. Practice number four is work. Once he's done talking about the soldier, Paul moves on to two new metaphors, and he first focuses on the athlete. Look back at the text at me, starting in verse five. He says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. I am sure I'm not completely alone in the fact that I have been missing sports for the last several months. Uh, With everything shut down, the stories have been pretty scarce. Uh, The most common stories I've been seeing in the sports world is um, basically what athletes are doing to stay in shape during the time. And my favorite one, as a fan of the Baltimore Ravens, uh, one of our wide receivers like bought one of those football throwing machines. And what he would do is he'd stand right here and he'd put the football in it and it would launch it and he would go catch his own pass, which like doesn't make any sense to me. Like I can't catch passes that other people throw at me. But like how are you going to catch your own pass, man? That's nuts. Um, but these athletes today, we, we just like kind of get these glimpses into their lives. And it's just nuts how hard these people are training. Uh, With all the science now that's being made available to athletes, they work harder than ever to train their bodies. And they are stuck at home. The fact that they're stuck at home has not slowed any of them down a bit because they know their ability to do their job well is based on their ability to work hard in preparation. And while American football was still a long way from being invented during this letter when it was written, Paul certainly probably had in mind uh, this type of training and preparation when he uses this metaphor. The most notable example of athletics at the time would have been the Olympics. Um, And here's what one commentator says about the Olympics of the time and what Paul was referring to. He says, in the Olympic Games, there were strict rules which had to be obeyed. This expression includes the idea of, quote, in the correct style, applied to fully-fledged athletes, professionals, as opposed to amateurs. Each athlete for these Olympics had to state on oath that he had fulfilled the necessary 10 months training before he was permitted to enter the contest. Any athlete who had not subjected himself to the necessary discipline would have no chance of winning and would in fact lower the standard of the games. There were severe penalties imposed on any who infringed the rules. Athletes don't just show up on game day and expect to win. They train, they study, they learn the rules, they practice. Lots of effort goes into their work. Lots of personal discipline and sacrifices invested early on for the hope of lasting glory in the long run. We Christians run a race in our daily lives for a lasting and eternal glory far more valuable than any medal, trophy, or award. 
This is explained a little bit in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. He says, uh, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Gold medals tarnish, trophies rust, but the glorious inheritance of God for his people is unfading, never ruined, and promised for those whom God has caused to believe in himself. In verse 6, Paul continues with this theme of work, this time focusing on the farmer. He says in verse 6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of his crops. The Bible actually has an economic system and principle that states those who work hard earn whatever they've worked for. That's a pretty straightforward run, right? But we can all agree with it. Those who work hard deserve and have earned whatever it is that they worked for. Um, this is also, uh, it's repeated throughout the Bible. For example, Romans chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Uh, and now as any farmer or worker will tell you, reward comes not through working really hard at the beginning and hoping for the best. It comes through uh, patient, faithful endurance and work. Any get-rich-quick scheme will not get you rich at all, much less rich quickly. Most of us will work for the majority of our lives, and good work is not marked by a really fast sprint, but a slow and steady run. Good work is marked by consistent, hard, faithfully done work over time. Um, I do want to take just a minute to identify in this passage. Um, it's not entirely uh, based on what we're talking about, but I think it's important uh, to mention this particular passage, a lot of scholars and commentators will point to this chapter um, as one of Paul's examples of how it is thought good for those who uh, serve as pastors to receive compensation. He sees Timothy as a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first fruits of the toil. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, this supports the view. Um, Paul supports his view, this view, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, um, and he clarifies in the work of Titus, that we should that pastor should not seek to make gain or lots of money through the work of ministry, but to be able to provide for um, physical needs of him and his family. This is corroborated in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 14, where Paul explains to the church in Corinth in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. The implication is pretty unmistakable that those who have given their lives to the ministry and gospel work are entitled to receive a livable wage, nothing less, but certainly nothing more either. This practice parallels the law of Israel described in Deuteronomy 18, where Levitical priests were entitled to the first fruits of the offering of God's people. So as God's people in a local church, it is our biblical responsibility and our honor under God to offer a livable wage to those who have dedicated their lives to gospel ministry as pastors. I do realize that most of us here are not pastors, and I don't want you to think this passage is not applicable for you either. We see in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that God's design for work happened before the fall. Work in and of itself is a good, right, and holy thing. Um, and it's something that God wants from us. Colossians chapter 3, 24, Hebrews eleven six, Second 2 John 1, 8, Psalm 18, 24, all imply that our hard work, our faithfulness in following God, sharing his gospel, and making and multiplying disciples will be met with a good reward. So we work hard at our jobs in the name of Jesus. We work hard in our homes in the name of Jesus. We work hard to share the gospel of Christ with family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers, parents, siblings, children, and anyone else we just met in the name of Jesus. 
We work hard to make and multiply disciples in the name of Jesus. So it must be the practice of the Christian to work hard and work well in the name of Jesus. And so for our last practice, number five is die. Somehow this wasn't the hardest one for me. Um, I want to admit to you all, first of all, that as I was typing this up, I was ready to uh, insert some kind of interesting uh, tidbit or anecdote about like a brave military general um, or like someone really famous in history, because it seems like it'd be really fitting here of like someone who is like, I won't die or I don't care about dying. And then he dies and it's all great. Uh, But in the interest of not pretending that I know things that I don't know anything about, we're going to talk about Harry Potter. Um, At the end of the first book, Harry is meeting with the headmaster of his school, Professor Albus Dumbledore, regarding some pretty incredible events that have happened and taken place. Uh, One of um, the professor's friends, his name is Nicholas, has been affected by the events of the school, and as a result, he will die at the age of 665. Harry naturally is mortified that his actions will result in the end of someone's life, but Dumbledore, in making an attempt to calm down his student, explains that Nicholas is understanding and quite content to let his life come to an end, and then he delivers one of the more memorable lines in this series. He says, to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. To the Christian, this quote takes on special significance in the real world. Yes, the real world. Hate to break it to you, Potterheads. The wizarding world is not real. Don't at me. Paul just talked about work, and then he specifies what our work ought to look like. Starting in verse 11, look at the text with me. He says, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The simple point of fact is for the Christian, death is the way of life. We are told from the beginning, the life that we live in Christ will be marked by our own dying, dying to self and daily cross-bearing. Jesus says in chapter nine, if anyone would come after me, let himself deny, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but, for, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It is clear early in Jesus' ministry, a life of following Christ while full of meaning, purpose, and joy, and ultimately receiving the eternal reward which we've talked about will be marked by denying yourself and dying to yourself. Jesus says, and Paul restates, that as we die in life, as we devote ourselves to the ministry of the gospel, we gain true life and everlasting life. And so we die to ourselves. We put aside our own wants, our own desires, in order to live the lives that God wants for us, a life of joyfully surrendered obedience. This is the life Jesus also led as he put aside any desire of his own flesh in order to live a life pleasing to the Father. John Calvin comments about what Paul says in this way. He says, where Christ is present, life and blessedness are also present. We must hold on firmly to the fellowship we have with Christ so that we do not die by ourselves, but with him, so that we may accompany him in his glory. We die with Jesus. We patiently endure evil like Jesus did, and we will inherit an eternal glory shared with Jesus. Paul goes on to say, if we deny him, he will deny us. This is clearly a teaching Jesus himself taught in Matthew 10, 33, when he says, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. There's not a whole lot to explain here. It's really straightforward. 
And um, one commentator puts it, why should God number among his people those who deny him? That's pretty simple, right? We don't deny Christ when, even when it comes at personal cost to ourselves. And one theologian says this passage, better than to be explained, should be meditated on. So I'm going to repeat this verse again real quick, and I want you guys just to take a few seconds to think about it. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Finally, in verse 13, Paul says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And how great it is that we have a faithful God who, unlike us, his faith is never shaken, whose trustworthiness is never, ever in doubt. I know a lot about myself. I know that my faith is often weak and oftentimes is shallow and is shown to be lacking and needing help. And God is always ready to help weak people like me. His glory is not dependent on my faith. It is my faith that is dependent on the glorious one. When God makes promises, he swears on himself because he is the greatest source of truth. And he does this when he makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. And one of the most incredible pictures in the Bible, in my opinion, at least. In that time, um, just to explain what's going on. A covenant, when a covenant was made between two different parties, each covenant brought an animal to sacrifice, right? So like you bring your goat, I'll bring my cow, we'll cut them in half. Um, and what happened is you, you kill these animals, you lay them on the ground and their blood kind of flows out of their body and it mixes together. It's really gross. Um, when, as it mixes together, both parties take off their shoes and then they walk through the pool of blood that's kind of formed. Um, And essentially what the covenant in that moment symbolizes is if I don't keep my end of the covenant, you get to do what you just did to your animal to me, right? It's a serious thing. It's if if I don't keep my end of the bargain, just the way you killed that goat, you can kill me. But if, if you're not familiar with what happens in that particular passage, Abraham gets the animals. He's about to go through it, make this covenant with God saying, I will keep all of your laws and you will keep your covenant toward me. I don't know about you, but I would have been in a lot of trouble if I had made that covenant with God. Abraham's about to go this, through this covenant. He's looking at it, and in his wisdom, God looks at him and he puts a sleep on Abraham. And instead of allowing Abraham to go through it, God himself goes through it two times. And in effect, he says to Abraham, if you do not keep your end of the bargain you can do what you did to your animal to me. And 2,000 years later, the last sacrificial lamb is lifted up on a cross and his blood pours out and he is sacrificed once for all sins, making way for all people to be saved and reconciled to God. God cannot deny himself. He is the faithful one. He may not operate on our timing, but he is God and he is faithful and he is trustworthy. If you do not yet follow God, today is the day of salvation for you. Today is the day God is waiting for you to turn away from sin, to turn toward Jesus and to accept his free gift of salvation. God will not deny you if you do not deny him because God will not deny himself. He is faithful. And if you already believe in Jesus, ask yourself, 
how will you continue to die to yourself? How will you put aside your own desires for the glory of Christ? It is the job of the Christian to deny and die to ourselves daily so that when we do truly die, we will have life forevermore. Of all the chores that I do at home, uh, mowing, my lo- mowing the lawn is my very favorite. It's uh, simple, straightforward, it's easy to explain, and has uh, really appreciable results really quickly. Um, so when I know my role, I do it faithfully. I fulfill my job as a homeowner, I do what I'm supposed to do. Christians, we have a job to do. We follow Jesus. And our walks with Jesus should be marked by multiplying disciples, suffering, fighting, working, and dying. If we are faithful to do these things, we will fulfill our purpose in life, we will serve God and love others well, and we will be welcomed into the joy of our master. So, look at your own walk with Jesus. This week, take a self-inventory. Treasure Christ. Love others. Work hard. Glorify God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this passage. I thank you that you don't save us into oblivion. You save us into a job. You give us things to do. You give us direction. You point us where we need to be. And while we do it imperfectly, I pray for your strength that we would never deny you. I pray that we would grow in faithfulness. And even when we are not faithful, that we would have trust that you are the faithful one. Strengthen us according to the grace in Jesus Christ. Help us to grow in love, to grow in love for others and love for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.